we went ready back there with the camera. All right, five, four, three, two, one. It's still Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. And so this is going to be part two of my message that I've entitled The Restoration of All Things in the Second Coming of Yeshua. So, of course, I was uh, able to give part one here um, at the morning service where I focused on the restoration of all things and why it's needful and necessary for there to be a restoration before Yeshua returns at his second coming. And so, um, ultimately, it's because his people have got into what the historical nation of Israel did, and that is mixed worship. And it is the job task of the ministry of Elijah to present to God's people that they are engaged in mixed worship and to call them out. And the ministry of Elijah precedes the coming of Messiah. So, since Yeshua came at his first coming, he was asked the question in Matthew 17, verse 10, why is it taught that Elijah must come first? And Yeshua said at his first coming, the one that walked in the ministry of Elijah was Yochanan the Immerser, or John the Baptist. And in the announcement of his birth in Luke, in chapter 1, and verse 13, the angel said to him, Fear not, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you will call his name John, Yochanan, which means the grace of God. And it says, verse 15, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And then it says in verse 16, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit, in the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now look at this element of the ministry. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that's a hint or a reference to Isaiah in chapter 40. So if we go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 is, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. So that phrase, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, it's a phrase of comfort to the exiles of Israel that ultimately the day will come when they will no longer be exiled. So, the end of the exile is synonymous with the end of the age and the coming of King Messiah. And so, this age that we're in right now is the period of exile, and this age will end with the end of the exile and the coming of King Messiah. Then it goes on to say in verse 3, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
prepare the way of the Lord. So then it goes on to say in verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. It's talking about the good shepherd of Israel gathering the exiles of Israel. And the good shepherd is gathering his sheep who have been scattered into the nations of the world. So there's two primary elements to the ministry of Elijah. It's to let the people of the God of Israel know that they've, they're in mixed worship and to come out of that mixed worship system. And we are labeling that, you know, return to the Torah. And the second element is in doing that, they are being prepared as a bride for Yeshua's return for his bride. And they're being prepared for his return to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's why in this movement, in the, in the birthing of this movement, it was we need to follow the Torah and the, the awareness of the teaching of sometimes it got labeled the two-house teaching. And in, with the gathering uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel, Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 16, the two sticks becoming one, that in them becoming one, that event has now been called or labeled the greater exodus. And so this is the second major part of the restoration that is associated and connected with the ministry of Elijah. All right? So many of you may be like me, if you're my age, and uh, you may have been going to church for 20, 30, 40 years. And you may have friends and family that's been going to church for 20, 30, 40 years. So are your friends and family that go to church, do they have an awareness that the Bible talks about Yeshua is going to return at his second coming? Do they have that awareness? Of course they do. All right. Um, is their perception of his second coming that he's coming to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel? They don't have a clue. Now, if that's really what the Bible says, they are unprepared. So how are they going to get prepared? That's the ministry of Elijah to prepare. How's it, how's it phrased again in Luke chapter 1? Go back and read it. It says, Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It says, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's to make a people ready. Who's that? That's the bride of Yeshua. Now, what is an alternative name for the bride of Yeshua? Zion. All right? So that's your background by which I'm going to share the rest of my message. And once again, I was amazed when I looked at the bulletin and um, I see printed on here reference to Matthew 24. And then at Oneg, I was talking with different people and they said, oh, yeah, we've been talking about that last week and the week before. You know, that's been brought up. 
And so I'm amazed, but I'm not amazed because I've been doing this for a while. And I see how the Spirit of God works that he puts upon my heart to come in and share about Matthew 24. And he's already been preparing you and your hearts regarding Matthew 24. So um, what I want to do is I want to examine Matthew 24 more closely. And in doing so, I want to examine and parallel Revelation chapter 6. And so here's um, my story regarding the link between the two. Now, as I shared in part one of my message, it was when I was 16 years old in Sunday school class that the Lord burned in my heart um, that I would live to see the second coming Yeshua. And at that time, when he put that strong um, thought um, in, my, in my heart, in my mind, I didn't know anything about what the Bible had to say about the second coming of Yeshua. And so uh, the Sunday school teacher, when um, I presented that about, you know, could you uh, do a little teaching on the second coming of Yeshua, the Sunday school teacher said, that's over my head. And so they asked the pastor's wife to come in to address the subject matter, and she did. And in the Sunday school class the next week, guess what she presented? Matthew chapter 24. And so my start of orientation in the study in Bible prophecy was Matthew in chapter 24. And so I've had a deep thirst, a desire, a hunger, a never-ending quench to want to know and understand Bible prophecy from then until now. I'm still interested. In, I'm, 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 I'm still searching and seeking and trying to um, see if there's something that I still yet don't understand that can be pieced together. Now, that being the case, it was 10, 12 years ago. Um, I was asked to uh, speak at a Shaba Oat gathering in Colorado. And one of the other speakers that was there, he taught on Matthew 24. And he taught that Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 are in parallel with each other. And so I, I heard him present the thought, but at that point in my understanding of Bible prophecy and things, um, I couldn't reconcile and put that into my puzzle. And so I, I heard what was presented and I just set it over there. And I could tell you, I heard what was presented. And fr quite frankly, I completely forgot about it. And uh, January or February, the thought came to me. Um, yeah, I remember that 10 years ago. I wonder if I go back and examine that, if it would make sense to me now. And so I did that. And I said, oh, my goodness. It fits. I see it now. And I'm excited that... This was shown to me that in my, my belief, in my mind, that I could see it. And as a result, I wanted to share it with others. I want to share it with you. And that's in part how it's come to be, how the Lord worked in my life to put it upon my heart to share, given that he's prepared you and you guys have been talking about Matthew 24. All right. So 
in Revelation 6, now you didn't tell me that part. You was talking about the seven churches, but I never heard that you was also talking about Revelation 6. All right? Isn't Yah amazing? The Ruach is amazing. And the Ruach's putting it all together. So, are you all ready? Okay. A fresh look at Matthew chapter 24. Okay, we're going to begin in verse 3. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. It says, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. Okay, why is this event happening on the Mount of Olives for? Because Yeshua is going to be asked, when are you coming back? And you know where it says where he's coming back in Zechariah 14? And in Acts chapter 1? On the Mount of Olives. And in the Jewish writings, the Mount of Olives is called the Mountain of the Messiah. And so... It's no coincidence that this event is taking place on the Mount of Olives. All right. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming? And I'm going to read from the King James, because I'm reading from a King James or a New King James. What shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? That's how it's phrased in the New King James. All right. So I emphasize twice now. I'm going to do it the third time. What shall be the sign? Now, we need to understand the question. I mean, um, so in the question, how many signs did the disciples asking for? How many? Very good. One. The sign means one. They ask him for one sign. In all my years of hearing uh, messages about Matthew 24, I never heard anybody point that out. That the question is, tell me one sign. So did Yeshua immediately tell them the one sign? Is that how he answered the question? No, if you go back and reconsider and, and, and re-look at Matthew 24, here's what he did. He gave them many signs of the sign. And we get lost in all the signs that we forget when he then ends up talking about the sign. But I'd like to submit to you that the sign is important. But then, here's how it's phrased in the New King James. It says, end of the end of the world. Now, with a natural human mind, what does that sound like? The end of the world. It sounds like the world's going to blow up. All right? Okay. Put yourself in Torah, Hebraic context. Now, this question was asked 2,000 years ago. What would a Jewish world 2,000 years ago, given that his disciples would have understood that Yeshua is the Messiah, and that's why they're specifically asking him this question. What would be on their hearts and their minds that they would be asking him? What would they want to know? Can you tell me? What would they want to know? What would a Jewish, uh, an Orthodox Jewish mind want to know today? When is the end of the exile? 
Because what do Orthodox Jews do? They pray at the Wailing Wall. And what are they praying at the Wailing Wall? They're praying for the coming of the Messiah. And they're praying, end our exile, end our exile. So you know that phrase, end of the world? You know what it really means if you take it back in its context? Yeshua is asked, what's the sign that you're coming to end the exile? Have you saw it that way before? But that's actually what's being asked, okay? So uh, now uh, we're going to go to the parallel version in Luke, all right? And in Luke chapter 21. So the question um, that's parallel to Matthew 24, 3 is Luke 21, 7. They ask him, saying, Master, when shall these things be? What sign will there be? When shall these things come to pass? So um, he answers the question. And once again, he gives him signs of the sign. Now look at this. Here's how he is ending up after he's telling them the signs of the sign. In Luke chapter 21, verse 28. And when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. Okay, now, if a regular Christian would be reading those words, your redemption draws nigh, what's the image that's got to come into their mind when they're reading, Yeshua said, your redemption draws nigh? What do they got to think? Oh, probably I'm saved now and he's coming for me and hallelujah, right? Nothing much too deep or more intense than that, all right? But if I'm an Orthodox Jew... And I read those words, your redemption, your redemption. What does the word redemption mean to an Orthodox Jew? That's the word that they use to describe the end of the exile. Because the coming out of Egypt is called the Egyptian redemption. And when Messiah gathers and unites the 12 tribes of Israel, they call that the Messianic redemption, but... The shortened way of saying it is the redemption. So when he uses the phrase, your redemption, he's specifically talking about the end of the exile. So therefore, Yeshua is going to give you one sign that you're going to know that now the end of the exile is going to take place. Have you ever saw Matthew 24 in that way before? Well, that's actually what's going on. Okay, and so now we're going to look at the sign, okay? Um, In uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 25, it says there will be signs, plural, the sun and the moon, men's heart failing them for the things that come upon the earth. Um, And now we're going to go back to Matthew 24 and take up Matthew's version. Um, In verse 30, Matthew 24, verse 30. And then shall appear the sign. Now in verse 30, we got the sign. Then will appear the sign. Now he's finally answering the question. Then will appear the sign. And what is the sign in verse 30? 
you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Oh, there's your sign. Your sign is he's coming in the clouds. That's your sign. All right. Now, probably to most people, 98% of people, what image immediately goes into your mind when you're reading those words, he's coming in the clouds? What image? Right up there. Those are the heavens. He's, he's, he's returning now. He's coming in the clouds. That's not the Hebraic understanding. Would you like to know the Hebraic understanding of what coming in the clouds means? It actually has a dual meaning. What you're thinking of coming in the clouds is the second part of the meaning, not the first part. What you're missing is the first part of the meaning of those words. He's coming in the clouds. All right, so now next I want to share with you what the sign is. In the sign, he's coming in the clouds. But what does that mean? All right, so now we're going to go to Joel in chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord comes, it is near at hand. Okay, Joel 2, 1. Has the day of the Lord arrived? No, it's near. In other words, I can, it's close enough that I could probably touch it, but it hasn't yet come yet. Okay, So I'm to be notified or made aware that, that the day of the Lord's coming. And, and what's the Hebraic way of making you aware? Blowing the shofar. Okay, The shofar is to make you aware. And there's many reasons for the blowing the, the shofar. One is that there's going to be a battle. One is to gather. All right. All right. So now we have the coming of the day of the Lord. Verse two, that the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloominess. It's a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, I'm just reading this with my human logical mind here. And when I'm reading that the day of the Lord is described as a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, does the imagery come into your mind as being positive or negative? Negative. Does all of those words sound negative? Yes. But guess what? There's a certain element of the phrase that is extremely positive. Extremely positive. But when you just read it with your logical mind, it sounds all negative. Can I share with you the part that's extremely positive? Um, that it's uh, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That's the extreme positive part of the day of the Lord. So now I'm going to show with you what that phrase means. The day of clouds and thick darkness and why that's extremely positive. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34... There's a condemnation against the shepherds of Israel in verses 1 to 10. And because the shepherds of Israel are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, as a result, it says in Ezekiel 34, verse 11, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will deliver them out of all the places where they've been scattered. Now look at this. It's going to tell you exactly when it's going to happen. 
in the cloudy and dark day. The day of the Lord is a day of clouds and thick darkness. I'm going to gather them from all the nations where they've been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. In the cloudy and dark day. So what's the meaning of the cloudy and dark day? Well, we just saw it in Joel chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. It's a phrase that means and it's associated with the day of the Lord. So when is he going going to scatter the exiles of Israel? In the biblical time frame called the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now let's go back to the Torah to get our definition. Okay? What's the day of clouds and thick darkness? We're going to go back to the Torah in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter uh, 24. Keep your finger there if you're following along. Um, but before I read from there, I'm going to read Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and light. How were the children of Israel led in the wilderness? Um, how did the one that brought them out of Egypt, what way did he lead them to go into the promised land? He led them by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, right? So now let's go to Exodus chapter 24. And now let's look at verse 15. Exodus 24 verse 15. I'm also going to read through verse 17. And Moses went up into the mount, that's Mount Sinai, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and a cloud covered it six days. So when Moses is with the God of Israel on Mount Sinai, I'd have to elaborate this a little bit further, but you know who he's um, with there on Mount Sinai? It's actually Yeshua. Okay? Moses with Yeshua on Mount Sinai. And the presence of Yeshua with him, that his presence is described as a cloud. So a cloud covered the mount. And this cloud is called the glory of the Lord, and it was on the mount for six days. Now, verse 17, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. So the presence of Yeshua with Moses on Mount Sinai is a cloud and a fire, and that cloud and fire is called the glory of the Lord. Now, in Moses retelling what's happening here, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 22. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke unto all your assembly in the mount, out of the midst of the fire of the cloud, and of thick darkness. So the presence of Yeshua speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai is described as a cloud and a fire and thick darkness. A cloud, fire, and thick darkness. The day of the Lord is a day of clouds and thick darkness. So what's the cloud and the thick darkness? 
That's the presence of Yeshua in the form of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Now, the children of Israel was led by one cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And so that's why uh, it says that he spoke unto all your assembly in the midst of the fire of the cloud. Singular. Okay, how's the day of the Lord described in Joel 2.2? 2? It's a day of clouds. Plural. And thick darkness. So... We're not talking about one cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. We're talking about multiple cloud by days and pillar of fire by nights. So what is the name of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? What did we just read it was called? It was called the glory of the Lord, right? It's called the glory of the Lord. Now let's look at Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23. And it's describing the new Jerusalem. It says the city, meaning the new Jerusalem, had no need of the natural sun and the natural moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it and the Lamb is the light. Who's the glory of God that lights the new Jerusalem? Yeshua, the Lamb is the light. The glory lit it. So who is the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? That's Yeshua. And so what's the sign of His coming? He's coming in the clouds. And now let's go back and see how it's phrased. Let's look at... Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. You will, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. What was one cloud by day and pillar of fire by night called? The glory of the Lord. But he's coming in great glory. That means he's coming in multiple cloud by days and pillar of fire by nights. So it was Yeshua that spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. He was the glory of the Lord that led the children of Israel out of exile, out of Egypt, out of the wilderness, and led them to the promised land. And the Torah is a prophecy of what is to come. And that's a prophecy that Yeshua, as the good shepherd, is going to gather the exiles of Israel from the nations where they've been scattered. And... He's going to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's going to bring them back to the land of Israel. Ending the exile. And that's the end of the age. Not the end of planet earth. It's the end of the period of exile. So how do you know he's going to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives? Because first... He's going to gather the exiles through multiple cloud by days and pillar of fire by nights. Now, the gathering and uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is described and likened to a marriage. The gathering and uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is likened to a marriage. Let me show you several verses that speak on this. Jeremiah 
in chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. I'm going to bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth. And with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travails with child together. And a great company will return. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. The one that's gathering is the shepherd. He, and the one that gathers is the one that's scattered, which means Yeshua had to give the Torah at Mount Sinai because the one that gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, because they didn't keep the covenant, scattered. But now the one that scattered is going to gather. And when he gathers, he does as a shepherd, gathering his sheep. Verse 11, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. See, the gathering of the exiles of Israel is called redeeming Jacob. It's called the redemption. He's redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. You know who the hand of him that was stronger than he is? Esau. Okay? So Jacob's being redeemed from the oppression of Esau, all right? And now, verse 12, therefore they will come and sing in the height of Zion. So here's the key verse. I shared with you the verses about the gathering of the exiles of Israel. Verse 13, then will the virgin rejoice in the dance. That's marriage phraseology. The gathering is likened to a marriage. Let me give you another verse. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 11. Jeremiah 33, verse 11. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. That's wedding talk. Okay, what is linked with wedding talk? The end of the verse. Jeremiah 33, verse 11. The end of the, year, end of the verse. For I'm going to cause to return the captivity of the land as at the first, says the Lord. Okay, the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. I'm going to cause to return the captivity of the land and the exile. So the end of the exile is likened to the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. A marriage. So the gathering uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is likened to a marriage. Okay, now let's go to Isaiah and chapter 4 and verse 5. Where is the marriage going to take place? It's going to take place in Mount Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem. All right, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 5. The Lord will create, will create his future. He will create on every dwelling place. How many? Every dwelling place. How many? It's more than one. Okay? Every dwelling place of Mount Zion. So in this verse, in this verse, Mount Zion is called every dwelling place. On every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies. How many? More than one. Upon her assemblies. What will be upon every dwelling place and her assemblies? And where is it at? Mount Zion. In other words, Mount Zion is going to be the collective name for all the assemblies. It's going to be the name of the assemblies themselves. Okay? 
upon her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. On every assembly is a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. On every assembly. How many cloud by days and pillar of fire by night? Multiple. And then it says, for upon all the glory. Why does it say upon all the glory? Because the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night is the glory of the Lord. So upon all the glory shall be, and the King James says, a defense. The Hebrew word is hoopah. Upon all the glory will be a hoopah. What's a hoopah? It's a wedding canopy. You get married underneath the hoopah. So the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and the gathering is likened to a marriage because it's called you're underneath the hoopah. Okay, so do your... Christian friends and family know that when Yeshua returns at his second coming, he's coming for his bride? Of course they know he's coming for his bride. Do they know that the marriage to the bride is linked and associated with him gathering, uniting the 12 tribes of Israel? So guess what? They're not prepared. So how are they going to get prepared? That's the job of the ministry of Elijah. He's the ministry of Elijah, to prepare a people for the Lord. And the preparation is of the bride to know that the bridegroom is coming to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. All right. So now look at this. If you saw the big picture, because I showed you bookends. All right. I showed you the question. What's the sign? Then I showed you what the sign was. He's coming in clouds in great glory. I went back to the Torah and the prophets and showed you what clouds in great glory is. It's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So do you see if I read in English words... And I don't know the Torah, how I will not be understanding the words, even though I'm reading them in English, because I don't know the Torah, because the words that you're reading is hidden in a Hebraic Torah perspective and understanding. You see that? All right. So uh, now, after he tells you, well, this is a sign, and there's details, you know, there's signs of that sign, all right? So then he actually goes on from Matthew 24. And Matthew 25 is the continuation of him answering the question. And so in Matthew 25 verses um, 1 to 13, he tells what we call the parable of the ten virgins. So why is he going to be giving you a wedding parable following him being asked, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age, why is he going to be then telling a wedding parable? Because he's going to come to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel, which is likened to a wedding, and now he's going to give you a parable about that wedding. All right? So, uh, what does it say back to Jeremiah chapter 31? Jeremiah chapter 31, after it said in verse 10, he that scattered Israel will gather him, and keeping as a shepherd as his flock. What does it say in verse 13? Then will the virgin rejoice in the dance. So the return of his bride, who's called Zion, she's called a virgin. And her return to the Torah and being ready for her bridegroom as a bride. She's called a virgin. Okay? So now, in Matthew 25, he has a parable of virgins. A parable of ten virgins. So, um, 
If you've been in church the last 20, 30, 40 years and someone's talked about this parable, how did they frame the ten virgins? You know, five were wise and five were foolish. How'd they explain the parable? Uh, you know, the wise, those are the believers. And the unwise, you know, those were the unbelievers. Isn't that how it's been commonly taught? All right. So put on your Hebraic Torah mind now, okay? Um, there were ten virgins. Why ten? Ten is a minion. And in order for the Orthodox Jewish community to regard that we have a congregational gathering, you have to have ten. If you have less than ten, you can't call it a congregation in the Orthodox Jewish definition of things. All right, so ten means the congregation. So ten virgins means ten, the congregation, virgins. Now, can you tell me anywhere in the Bible that an unbeliever is called a virgin? No, an unbeliever is called a whore. You know, you have to, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. An unbeliever is never called a virgin. Who is called a virgin? Someone who has been made, their sins have been forgiven by the blood of Yeshua. He makes them white. And the forgiving of their sins. So, ten virgins is a way of saying the body of Messiah, the people that believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, is what ten virgins mean. All right? So now he says five are wise and five are foolish. Is he, is he trying to give you a math equation? Is he trying to say it's 50% and 50%? Uh, no. Why five? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five wise. What does wise mean? What does wise mean? It means those that are following the Torah. So if we go to Proverbs in chapter 29 and verse 7, whoever keeps the Torah is a wise son. You see, one that follows the Torah is walking in wisdom and understanding. All right? So five were wise. That means. Um, when Yeshua returns among his body of believers that believe in him, there will be those that are following the Torah, five wise, and then there's going to be those that are not following the Torah. And those that were not following the Torah, they missed the wedding. What is it that they missed? They missed Yeshua returning to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. They did not participate in what we are calling the greater exodus. They missed the greater exodus. Does that mean they missed getting saved? No, it didn't mean they were missed getting saved. It meant that they weren't prepared for him to come, for him to dwell with them. Because in the Hebraic wedding, there's two main stages of the wedding. One is betrothal, where you're legally married to, but you do not physically dwell with. And then the second stage, you physically dwell with. He's coming for a bride that he's going to physically dwell with. He's going to rule and reign with her for a thousand years on the earth. Okay? So, what Christians call salvation is the betrothal part of the marriage. So, if someone is saved except Yeshua as the Messiah, are they his bride? Yeah, they're a betrothed 
bride. But what does a betrothed bride have to do in order that the bridegroom will want his betrothed bride to be a dwelling bride? She has to be faithful. Right? So I see it in the bulletin right here. Uh, if we go back to Matthew chapter 24, um, and talking about his coming, he's coming for his bride. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant? What does wise mean? Following the Torah. Whom his Lord will make him ruler over his household and give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find doing, and he will make him ruler over all of his goods. So Yeshua then says when he returns, there's going to be faithful and unfaithful servants. So what's the faithful servant doing? He's, the faithful servant has come out of mixed worship. They're following the Torah, and they're following the Torah by the Spirit, and when you do that, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. They're spiritually mature, and they're preparing themselves for His return, and they're preparing themselves knowing that He's coming back to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're preparing for His return in that way, in that context. But the foolish virgins don't know He's coming to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. So when He came, the door got shut. In other words, they missed the greater exodus. And I want to say again, it doesn't mean that they missed getting saved. They missed the dwelling part of it because they fell asleep. They were, after being betrothed, they were unfaithful. What were they unfaithful to? His Torah. And what specifically did they depart from? His statutes. And what of his statutes did they depart from? They, depart, they, they departed from the Sabbath. They departed from the biblical festivals. And they departed from the dietary laws. So why did she need to return to the Sabbath and the biblical festivals and the dietary laws? Because if you learn what's the spiritual meaning and purpose of the Sabbath and the festivals and the dietary laws. Let me read to you what Paul said regarding them in Colossians in chapter 2, and verses 16 and 17, he says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink, respect to a holy day, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Meat or in drink. You might say that's the dietary laws. Holy days. That's the festivals. The new moon, the Sabbath. Let no man judge you. These are a, these are a shadow of things to come. To come is future. When these verses are read, they highlight it's a shadow. It's a shadow. And uh, so when we come together for the Sabbath, the festival, is it meant to be a rehearsal? Yeah. What is a rehearsal? It's a shadow of the real thing. So, yeah, the Torah says in Leviticus 23 that the festivals are a rehearsal. Okay, so it's a... Shadow of something to come. The body, the substance, the heart of what the Sabbath is about, the heart of what the festivals are about, the heart of what the dietary laws is about is the coming of Messiah. So really, you really haven't 
kept the Sabbath or the festivals or the dietary laws, if you still yet don't know how it teaches about the, the second coming of the Messiah, because he made you aware that you need to do these things, not because, okay, it's time I do these things, but that you would be taught in doing them what they mean and how they teach and apply to the Messiah and specifically his second coming so you can be prepared for his second coming. And so the foolish virgins didn't return to his statutes and they didn't get instructed in his Torah. And at the altar that they're worshiping at, remember I said from the first message from Hosea 8, 11, and 12, that you're challenging communicating with your loved ones if they're still in the traditional church. You fear the Lord, they fear the Lord. And so they don't see that, that they're doing something wrong because they love the Lord and fear the Lord, and they really do. But they can't see what you're trying to tell them because they're involved in mixed worship. But the mixed worship they think of, that they're doing, they think it really is the true worship. And so now you're trying to tell me to get rid of the true worship. I mean, specifically the things that are near and dear to my heart, you know, his birth and his resurrection, you know, Christmas and Easter. How can you tell me his birth and his resurrection is something bad? Well, the events themselves are awesome. But you're celebrating them in a non-Torah way that's clouding your understanding, that's causing you ultimately to miss the second coming. And you're not aware of it. And so, because they're on that other altar... They haven't been taught that Messiah is coming together and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that altar is causing them, because they don't return to the statutes, and they don't receive the ministry of Elijah to bring them back out of mixed worship to keep the statutes and judgments, they end up being, in their ignorance, foolish virgins. And so we should have care and compassion for them And try to reach them and share with them that Yeshua is coming to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. And you need to get and prepared and be ready. All right? So now, the next concept you need to understand, given that Yeshua is returning for his bride, and the gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel is likened to a marriage, you need to know that when the prophets describe the transformation of exile to the end of the exile, that there's a period that the Bible calls, um, and it's likened to a woman giving birth to a child. There's a transition period from exile and ending the exile to the inauguration Of the end of the exile. From the exile itself to the end of the exile, there's a transitioning. And the end of the exile is called Zion. And that being the case, now let's go to Isaiah in chapter 66. And Isaiah in chapter 66 Verses 
So Isaiah 66, verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Now, do you know that the Bible was written in a way uh, to catch your attention and make you stop and say, whoa, what's going on here? And this is one of the many places the the uh, uh, the Hebrew language itself does that to you. But but before she travailed, she had a child. And wait a second, we have pain first, and then we have the child. We don't have the child, and then the child's born, and then later we have pain from the, from the birthing of the child. The the pain of the birthing of the child comes first. But the, the but the text says before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came. She was delivered of a man-child. All right. Who's this man-child that it's speaking of? It's the Messiah. And so how was the Messiah born? And after he was born, the pain came. Well, that's what happened at the first coming. He came, and when was the pain? The pain was to Jerusalem. And what was the pain? The Romans came and destroyed the temple and scattered his people to the ends of the earth. That was the pain that came following. But Yeshua was born first, and then the pain came. So Isaiah 66, verse 7, is first coming. That he comes, and then there's pain. But verse 8 is second coming. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? For a nation... For shall a nation be born at once, as soon as she travailed. Now, okay, that makes sense now. As soon as she travailed, as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. So, Zion is the term for the end of the exile. But in order to get to the end of the exile, there's a pain process before we get the end of the exile. So you know what the alternative name for the pain process is? The tribulation or the great tribulation. That's the pain process. And you know where that pain process, one of the places where it's outlined? Revelation chapter 6. It's outlined in six seals. All right? So the name... Of the one that's birthing the child is Zion. As soon as Zion travailed. Zion's the one travailing. Zion's the one that's giving birth. Okay? So the name of the woman that's giving birth is Zion. And... When she gives birth to Zion, the end of the exile... What is synonymous with giving birth, wait a second, the name of the woman that's giving the birth is Zion, and what she's birthing is Zion. Let me say that again. The name of the woman, the name of the woman that's giving the birth, the name of the woman that's birthing the child, her name is Zion. But what she's giving birth to, the name of the child, is Zion. And synonymous with the woman giving birth to Zion, which is the end of the exile, synonymous with birthing Zion or the end of the exile is the revelation of the Messiah 
to all of Israel, to all 12 tribes of Israel, wherein they, all 12 tribes, recognize him as King Messiah. So now let's look at Isaiah. No, now let's look at Psalm, Psalm 87, Psalm 87. And we're going to go to verse 5. Psalm 87, verse 5. It says, Of Zion it will be said. This is the prophecy about Zion. Of Zion it will be said, This and that man was born in her. Who's that man? It's Yeshua. It's the Messiah. Of Zion it will be said, that man, of Zion will be said, the Messiah was born in her. In other words, the revelation of who the Messiah is, and ultimately the acceptance of who the Messiah is, is born out of Zion. All right? So now, what was Yeshua was asked? What's the sign of your coming? And uh, remember... Uh, it's written in the New Testament. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks wisdom, but the Jews require a sign. Do you know that that can be rendered a play on the Hebrew? Let me show you now the play of the Hebrew. So in English, we pronounce it Zion. But the Hebrew way of saying it is Z-O-N. So, you know what one of the Hebrew words for sign is? Zion. And so we have Zion, but the Hebrew word for sign, one of the words, is Zion. I'm just changing the vowel sound. The Hebrew letters are the same. Zion and Zion, the Hebrew letters are the same. Same four Hebrew letters. So let me show you that. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We have in verse 15, Rachel's weeping for her children. She's refused to be comforted. What's Isaiah 40? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Jeremiah 31, 15, Rachel is refused to be comforted. Why is she refused to be comforted? Um, because her children are in exile. Uh, so the Lord says to her in verse 16, stop weeping. Refrain yourself from weeping. Because your children shall come again from the land of the enemy. There's hope in your end, says the Lord, that your children will come again to their own border. So while Rachel's children are in exile, she's weeping. Now she's told to stop weeping when her children ends the, ends the exile. And specifically, there's a reference in verse 18 to Ephraim. I've heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. All right, so verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Verse 21. I'm reading from the New King James. It says, set you up waymarks. So in the return to the border, for the return and ending of the exile, it says, set you up waymarks. You know what the Hebrew word is? Zion. You know what the alternative rendering that I could translate Zion instead of waymarks? 
is a sign. Set you up signs. Set you up a sign. All right? So now let's go to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, it says in verse 1, There appeared a great, the New King James says wonder, but then there's a reference to the word wonder, and on the margin it says, or sign. There appeared a great sign in heaven. Yeshua was asked, what's the sign of your coming? There appeared a great sign in heaven. Now, um, do you realize that, to me at least, I'm going to mention it to you here, the evidence is that John wrote the book of Revelation in Hebrew, okay? So uh, let me give you evidence that he wrote it in Hebrew. Are you ready? Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, and, verse 2, and, verse 3, and, verse 4, and, verse 5, and, verse 6, and. Verse 12, and, verse 13, and. Revelation 9, 1, and, verse 2, and, verse 3, and, 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 7, 8, and, 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 and. Every verse is starting with and. Is that Greek grammar? That's Hebrew grammar. You know what the and is? It's the vav. And so it's translated and, 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 which means he's translating it from the Hebrew. He's translating it from the vav. Um, It was written in Hebrew. So is it possible that in the Hebrew, Revelation 12.1, there appeared a great zion in heaven, which is a play on zion. And so now look, there appeared a great sign in heaven. A woman, verse 2, she being with child, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. So what's the name of this woman that's in pain? It's Zion, Isaiah 66, 7 and 8. It's Zion. And what's the name of the child that she's birthing, Isaiah 66, verse 8? The end of the exile. So she's birthing Zion. But in birthing Zion, look what it says. Verse 5, she brought forth a man-child. Who's the man-child? The Messiah. So when the woman gives birth, that is the end of the exile, the end of the exile births the revelation of the Messiah because this and that man was born in her, and she brings forth a man-child. So Yeshua, gathering uniting the twelve tribes of Israel by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which is the sign that that is going to bring the acceptance, the revelation that Yeshua is King Messiah by all 12 tribes of Israel, including the Jews, and they're going to recognize him as the Messiah because what's the primary criteria by which the Orthodox Jews Determine who King Messiah is. He's got to end the exile. So guess what? When the Orthodox Jews, they're seeing all these cloud by days and pillar of fire by nights all around the world. And, and there's camps and people are coming to the land. And they know that all the people in those camps are not Jews. They're going to have a question. What's this cloud by day and pillar of fire by night? And who are these non-Jews that's being led by the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night? And there's so many of them that come back to the land of Israel. Rabbi, 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 is that the redemption? And who, who and what's doing that? 
The Messiah is supposed to do that. Well, that's Yeshua. Is that, is that Yeshua gathering, uniting the 12 tribes of Israel? There's got to come a point where they've got to understand and realize that it is. Because go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Well, now let's go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And verse 15. For if the casting away of them, that is, the Jewish people, not recognizing as a people that Yeshua is the Messiah, brought about the reconciliation of the world, what shall be the receiving of them be? What will be the case when the Jewish people, as a people, receive and accept Yeshua as the Messiah? Paul answers the question. Life from the dead. Now, if you don't know the Torah, you don't know the prophet, how are you going to read life from the dead? Oh, I got, I'm in an individual resurrection of the dead. Okay, what's the life from the dead that he's referring to? Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. We have the dry bones. And in Ezekiel 37 verse 11, he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel, all 12 tribes. For they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off from our parts. As long as northern kingdom is separated from southern kingdom, our hope is lost. Therefore prophesy and say, this is the Lord God, behold all my people. I will open your graves. Now what's defined as the graves? The nations of the world where they've been living. Exile. I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves and brought you up out of your graves. They've got to know that who is the Lord? We've got to know that Yeshua is the Messiah. When what? We have the resurrection of the dead. And what is the resurrection of the dead? He's gathering those that are dead that are in graves, and he's bringing them back to the land of Israel. You go on to see it. They're called two sticks, and to make them one. And in Ezekiel 37, verse 21, it says, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from all the nations where they've been gone and gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. So the gathering and uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is likened to the resurrection of the dead. And the gathering and uniting of the 12 tribes of Israel is biblical zeon. And there's going to be a birthing process to bring biblical zeon about. But when, when biblical zeon gets birthed, it births the revelation of the Messiah because it's the Messiah doing it by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And that's the sign of his coming. He's going to first appear in the form of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. That's the marriage. Okay, what happens after the marriage? A marriage supper. Okay, where's the marriage supper at? It's Revelation chapter 19. So we got Revelation chapter 19. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. What's the marriage? The gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel. And his wife has made herself ready. Oh, look, she's, she was ready for his coming, for him to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And so where is this marriage supper of the Lamb? Where is it? It's in the heavens. How you got to get there? The marriage is on earth when he's gathering the exiles back to the land, specifically Jerusalem. So that's on the earth. 
but the marriage supper is in the heavens. How you got to get there? It's called the resurrection of the dead. The church likes to use the word rapture. So when does the rapture take place? After he gathers and unites the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, those that are at the marriage supper, look. In Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he, he that is judge and make war. Verse 13. He was clothed with the vesture dipped in blood. His name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. And this armies are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who's that? That's those that was at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so those that were with Yeshua at the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming back with him. And when he's coming back, now he's coming in those clouds. And then he's going to set his feet down the Mount of Olives. And then what happens once he sets his feet down the Mount of Olives? We have a wedding celebration. Dancing and singing and joy. Okay. Oh, prophetically, what's happening tomorrow? Okay, a wedding. We're talking about Matthew 24 and the Lord's sense of humor. We have a wedding tomorrow. So he's prophetically, if you have eyes to see from the song service and, and, and everything that's going on, he's giving these little hints here uh, today about all these things uh, and confirming them. So um, he sets his feet down the Mount of Olives, and then he's going to set up his kingdom and rule and reign for a thousand years and teach the Torah to all nations from Jerusalem with his bride. That thousand years is the wedding celebration. And when the thousand years of that wedding celebration is over, you know what happens? The wedding celebration continues. And you know how long it continues? For eternity. So when he gathers and unites the 12 tribes of Israel, we're celebrating this for eternity. That's why it's such a significant event. All right, so now do you got the background to know that the gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel is likened to a wedding? And it's Zion is the name, is the term associated with the end of the exile, gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel. And Zion has to give birth to the end of the exile. And when Zion births, the end of the exile, which comes about from Messiah gathering um, his people by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that births, the revelation of Yeshua as the Messiah by all 12 tribes. And actually when he gathers the exiles of Israel, where you could visibly see it by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, all over the world, and he brings his people back to the land, now the gospel is being preached as a witness. And then the end comes. Then he's going to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. So that's the witness and testimony to the world that Yeshua is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And what's the restoration of the kingdom to Israel? Bring them back to the Torah. And he's going to rule and reign over all 12 tribes that are no longer in exile. And their enemies aren't ruling and reigning over them. All right? So this is what the disciples wanted to know. That's the question that they're asking him. Okay? So... Uh, now we go back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And uh, we're going to follow through how he answers the question. I already showed you, ultimately, he's going to give you signs before he gives you the sign. The sign is your redemption draws nigh, which was after all the signs. So as we begin looking at the signs, the first thing he says 
is take heed that no man deceive you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Messiah, and shall deceive many. Uh, verse 6, you will hear wars and rumors of wars. Be not troubled. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in, di in di diverse places. All right? So don't, don't be deceived. Then there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And then there's going to be famine and pestilence. All right? So now let's go back and look at Revelation 6. The, the first four seals is what's called the four horses of the apocalypse, okay? And so the first one we have is the white horse. And uh, he had a bow, a crown, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And so we have the white horse. And then we have the red horse. And what does the red horse do? It takes peace from the earth that they would kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. So we got the white horse followed by war, and then we have the black horse, and then we have the pale horse, the fourth seal, where uh, verse 8, Revelation 6, 8, uh, power was given to, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, etc. Okay, what I'm trying to show you is you line up the parallelism. Of Matthew 24 to Revelation 6. And let no man deceive you is associated with the white horse. And then there's going to be wars. That's the red horse. And then there's going to be famine and pestilences. Well, that's the black horse and the pale horse. So now, in Matthew 24, he's itemized for you these first, these first four horses... That's called the four horses of the apocalypse. Now, if we go to Matthew and back to Matthew chapter 24. So after he's itemizing these things um, in verses four to seven, then he makes a statement in verse eight. Now, all these things are the beginnings of sorrows. You know what the word sorrows is in the Greek? It's odin. And you know what the, the Greek word odin means? Birth pangs. All these are the beginning of birth pains. In other words, there's no birth of the child yet. We just got the birth pains. All right, I are, I, I've spent up to now giving you the background. These are the beginning of birth pains. So who is giving birth? A woman. And what's the name of the woman? Zion. And what's she birthing? Zion, which is the end of the exile. So Yeshua said, we're going to see... Uh, Revelation 24, verses 4 through 7, and we haven't seen the end of the exile yet. Those are just the beginning of the birth pains that's going to bring about, ultimately, the end of the exile. All right? So now, I want to stop and focus on, in the parallel association, Take let no man deceive you, that this would be associated when you're paralleling Reve Matthew 24 to Revelation 6, this would be associated with the white horse, okay? Now I want to look a little bit more specifically about the white horse uh, to give you something to ponder, to consider, all right? And so uh, let's read about the white horse. This is Revelation in uh, chapter 6, verse 2. 
And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he, and he that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. He went forth conquering and to conquer. Okay? So, that's our verse, Revelation 6-2. Now, notice this white horse was given a crown. So now we're going to look over here on the screen, okay? And what I typed in for, for, for what you see to be brought up, I typed in in the search engine, what is the Latin word for corona? Now, what is the Latin word for crown? Put in the search engine, what is the Latin word for crown? You know what it is? Corona. So, the Latin word for crown is corona. Okay, now the next thing I want us to see is that he had a bow. All right, now go to tab two now. So in uh, tab two, this is a blueletterbible.com, uh, and this is Revelation 6-2, and we see the word bow, and uh, we have the, the Strong's Greek number there, and then we have the Strong's word, and we see... Uh, that the, the Greek word that got translated as bow is toxin. Toxin is the Greek word. Now, from the Greek word toxin, we get the English word toxic. And toxin is also a name that we associate with a poison. Okay, So the Greek word that got translated as bow means poison or toxic. Okay, so I'll go slow. The Greek word is toxin, T-O-X-O-N, all right? Let's go to the next tab. So in the next tab, I put into uh, the search engine, what was the 2018 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year? What was the 2018 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year? So I'm going to step down here. I know you're trying to keep me on, on, the, on the camera, but I need to step down here so I can uh, read this. It says, uh, the adjective toxic is defined as poisonous and first appeared in English in the mid 17th century from the medieval Latin toxicus, meaning poisoned or imbued with poison. But the word's deadly history doesn't start there. The medieval Latin term was in turn borrowed from the Latin toxicum, meaning poison, which has its origin in the Greek, Greek word toxicon, pharmacon, lethal poison, Used by the ancient Greeks for smearing on the points of an arrow. The points of an arrow. Points of an arrow, like the points of a needle. The points of an arrow. Um, though interesting, it says, the word for poison that made the leap into Latin here comes from the Greek word toxicon, from which we get the Greek word toxin or bow. I read you all that to show you, that if you take it to the Greek, the Latin, into the English, what we got rendered as bow here is the Greek word toxin or poisonous, 
which, take it back to what happened with the ancient Greeks, it was something poisonous at the end of an arrow that you shoot with that perhaps could be likened if crown is, is uh, the Latin word for crown is corona, and now we don't have a crown but a bow, and the bow back into the Greek is going to be associated with something at the end of a point that's poisonous. Could we put two and two together and see a connection to COVID and the vaccine shot? Because COVID's called the corona virus, crown, corona. And um, for those of you who weren't interested at all in, in getting the vaccine shot, be simple for me. What's the prime, major, number one reason why you were reluctant to want to get the shot? Because you felt like they weren't telling you the truth about it. And what you were getting wasn't something that was innocent. It was something that was harmful to you. And you was concerned that it was being harmful to you because you were also concerned that they were deceiving you and wanting you to do it. Is that correct or not correct? So in other words, this thing that's been going through, you've been concerned about being deceived and you didn't want to be deceived. And so I can make that connection to the white horse. Can you see how I can make the argument? Now, at this point in time, I'm not going to be absolute. We will, let, we will wait to see how things play out. I just want to present it to you as possible consideration because you know how I'm going to put more weight that it might be so? Depending upon what happens to the red horse. And you know what may be the start of the red horse? Russia and Ukraine. Now, I don't know how this is going to play out. We are in process. So I don't know whether Russia is going to get their act together and, and defeat Ukraine or, or, or Ukraine's got to push them all back to the border and, and, and Putin gets concerned and he says, well, the only way I can get out of this is do something unimaginable, which he's been mentioning that he might or could do. And you know what I'm referring to. Um, you know, taking this nuclear, God forbid. And then is it possible that China's waiting there to see how all this stuff plays out? Is it possible that with a weak Biden presidency that perhaps China may at some point in time decide to attack Taiwan. And maybe if they do that, if they're successful or not successful, however long it takes, I don't know, could North Korea attack South Korea? So what I'm saying is to me, the potential is there for these things to happen. If they do happen, how long are they going to take to happen? I don't know. Is it going to take three months, six months, a year, two years, three years, five years? I, I have no idea. But basically we can say that if... The white horse is the coronavirus and the vaccine. It basically was a two-year season before we transition into Russia attacks Ukraine. So like I said, I'm not going to be a dogmatic about saying, well, this is so. Um, but right now, it's something I'm considering. And perhaps it's something that you may want to consider as well. And if it is, um, it is this generation's trials and tribulations um, that could be aligning up with how Yeshua is starting to answer the question, what's the sign of your coming? 
And the first thing he says, let no man deceive you, that's going to be parallel to the white horse. Then he talks about wars, that's the red horse. Then he talks about uh, pestilence and famine, that's going to be the black horse and the pale horse. Um, so if, if this parallel is being made then, Yeshua is going to say, you're going to encounter the first four horses of the apocalypse, and we haven't yet started the process of the greater exodus. That's only the beginning of sorrows. All right, so now we go back to uh, Matthew. What? Matthew chapter 24. But um, I forgot. I, I showed you the Greek here, okay? Now I want to show you the Hebrew. Go to the next tab. And so uh, what, what we put in here um, is the Hebrew word for bow, B-O-W, all right? And it doesn't matter. It appears a lot of verses, but I think I put in Genesis 9.14. Okay, Bo, it says it's the Strong's number 7190, 7198, for what it's worth. It's the Hebrew word, Keshet, okay? So what you would do is you would click on that Strong's number, 7198. It's going to give you an expanded understanding. So let's go to the next tab. Let's act like we did it. And so uh, 7198, it's going to say that it's going to be come from and it's going to be associated with the Strong's number 6983 as a base. And look what the base of the Hebrew word kashet, which is kosh, look what the base of it means in the Hebrew. It means to set a trap or to lay a snare, to lay bait, a trap or a snare. And you know, you know uh, what you're doing when you're laying a snare or a trap? Whatever you're trying to catch, you're trying to deceive it, to go into the trap. So the Hebrew word, if you take it to its root, of which Brad Scott was great at teaching and explaining of blessed memory, um, the Hebrew word is going to be associated with deception. Now I showed you the Greek word it's going to be associated with deception. And the first thing that Yeshua mentioned was, let no man deceive you. Now... 20, 30 years ago, would have ever came into anybody's mind, Bible prophecy student, teacher, that somehow that's going to be related to a coronavirus 10, 20 years ago? No. So how did we interpret it 20 years ago? Well, the white horse, the one that's bringing the deception, is the Antichrist. So that's the Antichrist. Well, with what we had to go with there, that wasn't too bad of a try. You know, we, we, we do with what we, what the best way we understand at the moment. Um, but now we got more information. And to me, I think it's possible that we can make that connection. So we have the four horses um, of the apocalypse. And Yeshua just said, okay, that's just the beginning of the birth pains. The woman hasn't given birth yet. So we go back to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8 when he says, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now look what he says. They will deliver you up to be afflicted and they will kill you and you'll be hated of all nations for my namesake. Many will be offended. They'll betray one another, hate one another. Look, uh, there's going to be persecution. They're going to kill you. Now let's go back to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. What is the fifth seal? The fifth seal, Revelation 6, 9, is the martyrdom of the saints. They're killing the saints. All right, 
So now that takes us to the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. And behold, when he had opened the sixth seal, lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. You see that phrase? I'm going to read it again. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood. Now this is, we're being told, that is a characteristic in the outcome of the sixth seal. Okay? Now, I'm going to take that phrase, and I'm going to see where that phrase appears in the Bible to see if we can understand uh, some kind of a time reference, okay? So now let's go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard um, in the Bible the teaching of Gog and Magog, haven't you? And every time someone's teaching about Gog and Magog, where they got to go to talk to you about Gog and Magog? Ezekiel 38 and 39. You know what I'd like to present to you? They missed a major chapter in the Bible that describes Gog and Magog or part of a chapter. You know what it is? Joel chapter 2. Because let me show you. In Joel chapter 2, in verse 20, it says, But I will remove far from you the northern army. So the Lord, there's going to be an invasion of a northern army, and the Lord's going to drive them back. Joel 2.20, I'm going to remove far from you the northern army. Now let's go to Ezekiel in chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 1. Son of man, prophesy to Gog and say, Thus is the Lord God. Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I'm going to turn you back and leave you but a sixth part of you. I'm going to cause you to come up from the north parts. So he's driving back Gog and Magog, and they're coming from the north, and he's going to drive them back. Joel chapter 2, verse 20. I'm going to remove far from you the northern army. So that means what preceded Joel 2.20 was this army. Well, Joel chapter 2, verse 1, you're given a warning about this event. Blow the shofar in Zion, because the day of the Lord comes. So what's going to be associated with the coming of the day of the Lord? Driving back the northern army. So now it goes on to say, Joel 2.2, A great people and a strong there has not been ever the like, neither shall it be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devours, devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the garden of Eden in front of them. So before they come, Things are, the Garden of Eden, it's describing to you things are good, okay? But behind them, after they come through, the land is a desolate wilderness, and nothing will escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses. Now, what are horses associated in the Bible with? War. And as horsemen shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountain, they will leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble. So now what they're doing is they're, they're like a fire devouring straw. They're highly successful. And as a strong people set in battle away, array, before their face the people shall be pained. All faces shall turn and gather blackness. So as a result of what they're doing, the people are just shocked. Their faces will turn into blackness. They're just stunned. They're amazed. They can't believe it. And furthermore, they don't even know what to do. So do you see this phrase 
as a result of what this army is doing and invading the land. They're invading the land of Israel. You see what they're doing? All faces shall gather blackness. Now I'm going to quickly cross-reference that phrase. So keep your finger there in Joel chapter 2 and go back to, or go to Isaiah chapter 13 where the setting is, this is describing what's happening in this entity called Babylon, or actually the daughter of Babylon. Isaiah 13, 1, the burden of Babylon. And it says in verse 5, they come from a far country, from the ends of the earth, to destroy the whole land. How for the day of the Lord is at hand. You see what's being described in Isaiah 13, the setting of it, the day of the Lord is at hand. What's Joel chapter 2? Blow the trumpet because... The day of the Lord is at hand. So Joel chapter 2 is in parallel with Isaiah chapter 13. But in Joel chapter 2, they're invading the land of this army. is going against the land of Israel. But in Isaiah chapter 13, it's not against the land of Israel. It's this entity called the daughter of Babylon. Now what they're doing in Isaiah chapter 13, it says in verse 7, Therefore shall all hands be faint. Every man's heart shall melt. You see that phrase, every man's heart will melt? What did Yeshua say? Men's heart will fail them, or melt, for fear of the things coming on the earth. He's making a reference to this. He's making a reference to Isaiah 13, 7, and he's making an association to this event. It says, they will be afraid, pains and sorrows will take hold upon them. Now look at this, the end of verse 8, Isaiah 13, 8. They shall be amazed one another. Their faces shall be as flames. Well, what's say in Joel chapter 2? Their faces will be as blackness. In other words, same thing. They're stunned. They're shocked. They, they can't believe it's happened. They don't know what to do. They don't have words to explain what's going on. Okay? So now, back to Joel chapter 2. It says... Verse 9, they shall run to and fro in the city. They will run upon the wall. They will climb upon the houses. They will enter in as the windows. They will enter in at the windows like a thief. So what this entity is doing, it's like a thief coming in to rob your house. So this army or whatever isn't positive. It's negative. Okay? But then the Lord's going to turn back in Joel 2.20 it's called a northern army. Got to remove them. Now, we was in Revelation chapter 6, right? And we were cross-referencing uh, what the sun and the moon is doing. Now, now let's look at Joel chapter 2, verse 10. The earth will quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon will be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Joel chapter 2, verse 10. The sun and the moon will be dark. The stars shall withdraw their shining. Is Revelation in chapter 6 of the sixth seal. It's Revelation chapter 6 in verse 12. There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. All right. So that's Joel chapter 2 verse 10. The earth will quake before them. The heavens will tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark, the stars shall withdraw their, their shining. Okay, now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, just as review, I mentioned earlier, it's an attack against the daughter of Babylon. It's at the, when the day of the Lord is at hand, men's hearts will melt. 
their faces will be as flames. They can't believe what's happening. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both the wrath and fierce anger. Verse 10, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun will be darkened and it's going forth and the moon will not cause their light to shine. So you see Revelation 6.12 is Joel chapter 2 verse 20, which is Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10. You see that? Once again. Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, the sixth seal, what's happened with the sun and the moon, is making a reference to Joel chapter 2, verse 20, which is making a reference to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. So what's happening in Joel chapter 2 in the land of Israel, it's simultaneously happening in Isaiah 13. Now, I don't have time to dig into this and try to quote-unquote prove it to you, um, but Isaiah 13, I believe, is a... Russia-China attack upon the United States of America. And Joel chapter 2 is the, is the attack upon Israel. That there's a simultaneous attack against Israel in the United States. And this attack is called Gog and Magog. Now, do you remember? The children of Israel... The first few plagues, they were in Egypt. So as we start these plagues, you will be in the nations. All right? Um, and uh, then, then in Egypt, it says he made a distinction between Goshen and his people. That's a prophecy. So when, when we have this simultaneous military attack against Israel... And the United States, it's for the purpose of God's going to show a distinction between his people and Egypt. His people and the nations. His people and the United States. You know why? Because Joel chapter 2, he's going to intervene in the land of Israel. He's going to intervene and he's going to deliver his people and he's going to remove the northern army. But he's not going to intervene and deliver in the nations, i.e., the United States. The United States will not recover from the attack. But Israel will. Because he's making a difference between his people and his land and Egypt. Or the world. Or Babylon. Or the United States. So that he will receive the glory. And what he's doing in the land is he's remembering his covenant. Just like it was in Exodus 2. He remembered his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he called Moses. So he's going to do this for his name's sake and, and uh, deliver his people in the land. And so what's the people outside of the land supposed to do? They're supposed to know the signs. And they're supposed to know the signs of the sign. And they're supposed to know the signs so that when you see these things happening, of course, we're human beings, we're going to be nervous, right? But ultimately, he's telling you, don't be nervous. You know why? Because it's a sign that Yeshua's coming back with a cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And, and he specifically said in the midst of all this chaos, look up. Now, what do we humanly want to do? Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. All right. So now we go back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. So I, I went over Matthew chapter 24. 
um, verses 9 and 10, which is going to be associated with the fifth seal, the persecution. So where's the sixth seal at in Yeshua's answer? It's Matthew 24, verse 29. Now I'm going to read this um, from the King James. The King James reads, Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light. What's that? That's the sixth seal. Remember? The sun be dark and the moon will not give her light. That's the sixth seal. So now Yeshua in Matthew 24, verse 29, is talking about the sixth seal. And forgive me, um, I didn't make a tab for this. Uh, If she's good back there, uh, maybe she can type in that little box right there. Type in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Yeah, right there. Put in Matthew 24, verse 29. Uh, Because you know what the impression that you get by reading this in your English? When you read immediately after the tribulation of those days. You know what you think after means? Exactly what it means. It means after the tribulation. Okay. But click on the tools. Very good. Now um, let's let's get uh, um, get to the word after. Immediately. Come down. Come down so we can see the word after. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Oh, back up. After. So it's the, it's the Greek Strong's number 3326. So click on Greek 3326 where it got translated as after. All right? And it's going to show you every place where the Greek word appears. Okay? Now let's, uh, let's see. the. It'll show you the Bible verses. So go on panning it to see the Bible verses. Go, go, go. All right, stop. Um, Matthew one twenty three. that word got translated as with, God with us. Okay, uh, Matthew 2.3, it got translated in all Jerusalem with him. Matthew 2.11, the young child with Mary, his mother. Let's go keep going down, see what other ones. Uh, Matthew 4.21, with. Matthew 6.25, with. Uh, Matthew 5.41, with. Matthew 8.11, with. Do you see it keeps being translated as with? How many times was it translated as after? Most of the time it's with. Now, do you know what with means? It means together, alongside, at the same time as. So, um, actually, when this got translated as, af- when it when it got rendered after, it's more of a, uh, it's more of an interpretation as much as a translation. It's an interpretation more than a translation. So if you look at the occurrences, it can mean at the same time. So here's what he's... So if you can render this at the same time. Now another thing you can do, now just save it for time, but I think I've showed you how many occurrences are with. If you go find what the Hebrew word is, that's associated with this Greek word, and see how it's translated in Hebrew, you're going to see it's the same way. It's going to be among, beside, okay? Same thing. All right, so now let's render it this way. Immediately with the tribulation of those days, or at the same time the tribulation of those days, immediately with, or at the same time that the sun be dark and the moon should not give her light. In other other words, right at the same time as the sixth seal. Okay, verse 30. Then shall appear the sign. 
Then shall appear the sign. So when does the sign come? The sign comes after the sixth seal. The sign comes after the sixth seal. And going back to Joel chapter 2, verse 2, right? The day of the Lord is at hand, but now it describes the day of the Lord itself. The day of the Lord itself is a day of clouds and thick darkness. So when's the gathering take place? In the, in the time known as the day of the Lord. Now, when the day of the Lord hasn't yet arrived, you're being given warning, and I'll render what I'm trying to show you. You're given warning to look for Gog and Magog. Because when you see Gog and Magog, that's your sign that he's then going to, following that, gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel. So let me show you the sign more clearly. Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. What I'm about, what I'm about to show you, what I'm about to show you is the defeat of Gog and Magog. All right, so we have the invasion at the beginning of the chapter, and now we have the defeat of Gog and Magog. And now, with the defeat of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 39, 25, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. So he's making a decree. Now I'm going to do it. What is the context? What is the setting of when he's saying now? The defeat of Gog and Magog. And Gog and Magog is the sixth seal. And so, following the sixth seal, and that's what Yeshua said, immediately at the same time, we're coinciding with the sixth seal, or while we're in the sixth seal, in the effect of the sixth seal, now you're going to see the sign, and he's going to be coming in the clouds. And that's gathering the exiles of Israel. And now look what it says back in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. And he will send his messengers with the great sound of the trumpet. And they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to another. That's the greater exodus. That's the gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel. So when is Yeshua showing it's going to happen? After the sixth seal. And this is the sign. Now notice um, it, what he links with it. There's going to be a great, great sound of a trumpet that's going to be associated with gathering his people from the nations. The great sound of a shofar. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 13. Isaiah 27 verse 13. It will come to pass in that day. What day? The day of the Lord. It will come to pass in the day of the Lord that the great trumpet will be blown. So Yeshua is mentioning this great trumpet. Matthew 24, 31. And what's the outcome of the great trumpet being blown? They will come which were ready to perish. Why were they ready to perish? Because of Gog and Magog. They're ready to perish. In the land of Assyria, in the outcasts of the land of Egypt, 
But they will come and worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Now that's after he gathers the exiles of Israel. That's after he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. And that's after he then begins the process to teach the Torah to all nations from Jerusalem. Are you seeing? Are you grasping what I'm showing you? How Matthew chapter 24 is parallel with Revelation chapter 6? And where did Yeshua place the gathering of the exiles of Israel? Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. You will see the sign, the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And verse 31, he's going to gather the exiles of Israel. So when is he telling you you're going to see that sign? Following or along, along the same time reference as the sun will be dark and the moon will not give her light. Which is what? Revelation 6, 12. Which is what? Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Which is what? Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. Which is what? Gog and Magog. And what does it say in Ezekiel 39 about Gog and Magog? When Gog and Magog is defeated, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. All right? So now let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. After he declares in verse 25, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. It goes on to say in verse 29, Ezekiel 39, 29, neither will I hide my face anymore from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel. So when is he saying he's going to pour out his spirit upon the house of Israel? After now will I get now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob? So the purpose of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to bring back the captivity of Jacob. What does the church think the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the end of days is going to be? To get everyone saved. Now, will there be a lot of people when they see Messiah gathering uniting the twelve tribes of Israel? Is there got a lot of people going to get it? And want to receive him as the Messiah. Yeah, just, because, just like in Egypt and all the plagues, there were the native-borns in Egypt that be, became believers in the God of Israel. Yeah, many people will get saved. But primarily this outpouring is to gather Jacob back to the land. The greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has ever been in human history will be for the purpose of gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, so now let's go back to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, we have verses 1 and 2 as review. Um, We are to be notified and warned that the day of the Lord is coming. Why? Because in Joel chapter 2, down to verse 10, we have the Gog-Magog invasion of the land of Israel. And we know that because in Joel 2.20, he's going to remove and drive away the northern army now what happens after he drives or moves away the northern army in joel chapter 2 verse 20 defeats gog and magog well ezekiel 39 25 says now he's going to bring in the captivity of jacob so what does it say in joel chapter 2 verse 21 fear not O land rejoice for the lord will do great things what's the great things he's going to do gather unite the 12 tribes of israel Verse 23, be glad then, you children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God. He's given you the 
teacher of righteousness, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former and the latter rain in the first month. You're going to see the coming of the Messiah. And then it says, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. Verse 26, you will, be, you will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord. And he's dealt wonder, wondrously with you. And my people will never be ashamed. What does the phrase, my people will never be ashamed, mean? It means you'll no longer be in exile. It means the exile's over. The exile is a shame. My people will never be ashamed. Verse 27, and you will know that I am in the midst of the children of Israel. They'll know that who is I am, that Yeshua is the Messiah. And my people will never be ashamed. Twice it says my people will never be ashamed. It's a declaration of the end of the exile. Now look at this in verse 28. It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. It will come to pass afterward. After what? After the defeat of Gog and Magog. As we read in Ezekiel 39, after the defeat of Gog and Magog, then he's got to pour out his spirit. After he defeats Gog and Magog, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. All right? So now do you see the outline of Matthew chapter 24? Now do you see that, you, that what the disciples asked Yeshua in verse 3 is, give me one sign that you're going to end the exile. The way Yeshua answered the question is he gave him many signs of that one sign. And when we looked at the signs, they paralleled Revelation chapter 6. So then after he told the signs, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, you're going to see the sign. And he specifically mentions the sixth seal alongside the statement he's going to gather the exiles of Israel. And the gathering uniting the 12 tribes of Israel is like a marriage. So we have the marriage first. So when is he going to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel? At the exact same time that the beast system is rolling for 42 months and no one may buy or sell. At the same time. So he's going to gather and unite the 12 tribes of Israel at that three and a half year period that precedes him uh, setting his feet down on the Mount of Olives. Because what happens in Revelation 12 after the woman gives birth? Then there's a fleeing in the wilderness for 1,260 days. What's the fleeing in the wilderness for 1,260 days? That's the greater exodus. See, she births Zion, the end of the exile. Now we're giving us the detail. Uh, fleeing in the wilderness. Where's the wilderness? Ezekiel 20, the wilderness of the people. is where you're at now. Outside of the land of Israel. And so he's going to take you from the wilderness into the promised land. From the, where you're at now, he's going to take you back to the land of Israel. So he's going to, it's going to be a three and a half year period. At the same time that the beast system is ruling for 42 months. At the same time that no one may buy or sell. But who cares that no one may buy or sell? Because you're in the greater exodus. And... Yeshua took care of Israel in the wilderness. He gave them water, and he fed them. Who cares if no one may buy or sell out there? He's going to give you water, and he's going to feed you. And he's going to protect you. You don't have to worry about protection. You don't have to worry about food and water, and that's normally what you would be concerned about, protection, food, and water. So you know what you really have to be concerned about? Obedience to Torah. Because where were the children of Israel tested? Where they fail at? Obedience to Torah. So humanly, we think, I'm going to worry about my safety. 
I'm going to worry about food and water. You don't have to worry about it. He's the bridegroom. He's obligated by the Torah to take care of the needs of his wife, of his bride. It's a Torah requirement. That's her needs. She needs to be safe. She needs food and water. And so his obligation to do it, he will do it. But you got to be obedient. You got to follow the Torah. And now we're in training to learn how to follow the Torah so we won't be so inclined to be disobedient. So actually what's coming, even though it's described as labor pains, the birth of the child is joy. So every time a woman gives, gives birth to a child, she's prophesying of the end of the exile. And she's prophesying of the coming of the Messiah every time she gives a child. So that you can understand it in practical terms. And so, yeah, I, I, hey, I'm not a woman, okay? And I've never given birth to a child. So obviously I don't know what it's like, all right? Um, so, but th- th- therefore, um, are you afraid to have a child because of the pain that's going to come from the child? Or are you going to trust God that he's going to make you through? And when that child's born, there's great joy in your heart and you want to hug and kiss the child. And you're, you're thankful because you have that child to love and be a part of your life for the rest of your life. Okay? So that's how we're supposed to look on this, this process of Messiah coming in the end of days in the exact same way. Because look what it says in Isaiah 66. Look what it says in Isaiah chapter 66 after it says in verse 8, As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. It says, Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? Why is the question asked? Because it's going to look like in the natural it's not going to happen. That's why the question's asked. But... Here's what you're told. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all that love her. Rejoice with joy for her, all that mourn for her. And verse 14, when you see this, your heart will rejoice and your bones will flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Lord will be known to his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. He's going to make a distinction between his people and those who are not his people, just like he did in Egypt. So when you see this, look up for your redemption draws nigh. Uh, When you see this, your heart will rejoice because he is going to make a distinguish. uh, He's going to distinguish between you, his servant, to love him and follow him. He's going to make a distinguishing difference to the world between you and those who are not serving you. And now, the, now it's going to be right that the righteous get blessed and the wicked get punished. So has this helped you to understand the restoration of all things and the second coming of Yeshua and specifically his role to gather, unite the 12 tribes of Israel? Isn't this amazing how you guys, I did not know this when I came here, that you guys have been studying Matthew 24 and in your Midrashes, Revelation 6, and he's been preparing your hearts for this. And then he comes and brings me and puts upon my heart to share this with you to give you a greater clarification about what you've been studying. He's awesome. And we had the songs that was about that. 
And everything that he did today was all thematically associated and connected with that because he loves you so much that he wants you to be ready and prepared for his coming. So if you've been blessed, give all praise and glory and honor to Yeshua because he deserves our praise, glory, and honor because he loves Israel, he loves his bride, we love him, and we as his bride are looking forward for his return. And we, like John say, even so, come Lord Yeshua. Amen. Redeemer of Zion, the glory.